from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. USDA's first net farm income forecast for 2024 showing a dramatic drop. Well, it's another shocker from USDA. As sustainable aviation fuel and renewable diesel tries to take flight, has crush capacity been slow to come online? Oh, absolutely. But it's, you know, building new crush plants really is, is a very, very difficult, a difficult thing. How much is demand set to grow? We explore that in our roundtable. Plus, three female farmers breaking the mold and earning top honors from top producer this week. Their stories and the impact they're having on ag coming up. U.S. Farm Report, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when experience meets expertise. Pioneer, what's next happens here. Now for the news. After last month's supply and demand report from USDA shocked the markets with revision to 2023 yields, all eyes were on South American production in USDA's latest WASDE report just released this week. USDA making cuts to Brazil's corn and soybean crops, but not by much on the soybean crop. For Argentina, no changes were made compared to the January forecast. The agency also making some revisions to U.S. stock numbers, which all came in higher than the market anticipated. Corn stocks up 10 million bushels from last month to 2.1 billion. Soybeans up 35 million to 315 million, and that's on lower exports. And we also up 10 million bushels to 658 million. Well, big news for row crop farmers this week. Farmers may not be able to use dicamba this growing season following a federal court ruling in Arizona. The U.S. District Court in Tucson ruled the EPA violated notice and comment mandates for the pesticide registrations. And for that reason, it vacated the approval of three products used over the top of dicamba-resistant cotton and soybeans in 34 states. The court acknowledged the herbicide's benefit in controlling resistant weeds, but says EPA did not follow procedures and failed to assess risks and costs for non-users of dicamba. The companies Bayer, Syngenta, and BASF could appeal to the Ninth Circuit Court. EPA could also quickly review the herbicide environmental and economic impacts, but getting that all done before planting starts would be difficult. There's also a chance the herbicide could get emergency authorization from EPA. It's also key to note that this was the same court that vacated dicamba use in season a couple years ago. There are reports now that if former President Donald Trump is elected to the office again, he's considering a 60% tariff on Chinese goods. And there's growing bipartisan support in Congress for possible tariff increases on China, with lawmakers also recommending restrictions on Chinese investment to address concerns about economic ties between the two largest global economies. President Biden's trade chief, U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai, taking part in a discussion this week at the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. She emphasized that tariffs represent just one aspect of the complex trade dynamic with China, calling them a defensive tool. It's all about how you use them. And if you use them smartly, if you use them with the goal in mind of addressing unfairness to uh, leveling the playing field, then um, they're absolutely useful. Ty went on to say that the Biden administration's offense includes investing in the U.S., including in infrastructure, computer chips, and science, along with research and development in clean energy technology. 
USDA releasing its first look at 2024 net farm income this week, and it shows a dramatic drop. USDA is now forecasting net farm income to fall to $116.1 billion this year. That's down 27.1% from 2023. Net farm income is a broad measure of profits. And as you can see from the chart showing USDA's projected net farm income this year compared to the net farm income picture in previous years, this would mark two consecutive years of falling net farm income. We caught up with Farm Journal Washington correspondent Jim Wiesmeyer during Top Producer Summit this week. He called the forecast another shocker from USDA, saying the expected $40 billion drop this year combined with the $26 billion fall in 2023 shows the price cost squeeze that farmers are feeling right now. I don't know whether that's a signal when USDA has their Ag Outlook Conference, whether that's going to signal lower, much lower prices that are built into that forecast. I, I can't predict that, but that's some of what traders are asking me after they saw the farm income numbers. That's it for the news. Well, California was walloped with rain, wind and flooding this week. We'll have a check of your weather coming up next. U.S. Farm Report on the road from the 2024 Top Producer Summit is brought to you by John Deere. For generations before and generations to come, John Deere is part of your farm and your family. Whatever your equipment and technology needs, John Deere has the tools to help grow your farm. By Smart Nutrition Map Plus MST. From the ground up, see this Smart Nutrition Map Plus MST sculpture come to life. Witness the power of your soil this season. And by Tyrannus, moving the acre forward. Every acre tells a story. Find yours at acreforward.com. That's acreforward.com. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. H&S 3200 action rakes are available in 8 and 10 wheel models and feature independent rake wheel suspension. When raised, the rake releases crop uniformly for a finished windrow. Learn more at the H&S website. A monster atmospheric river system wreaked havoc on California this week. Some parts of the state receiving close to half a year's worth of rain already. Flooding and mudslides ensued from the record rain. And meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht joining us now with weather. Matt, now we're keeping an eye on snow in the mountains and the plains. I want to revisit what's going on with the drought monitor because an area that was in the extreme to exceptional, uh, including parts of Houston, Texas, Louisiana, even into Alabama and Mississippi has now been alleviated, not completely, but a big improvement in drought conditions uh, out of the extreme and the exceptional for a good portion of you know, some of these states uh, along the, uh, the Gulf Coast. Now, as we zoom up uh, back here towards the north, still looking at uh, a severe, if not extreme drought extending portions of the Midwest, but we're out of it uh, through the entire state of Indiana, Ohio, and a little bit into Michigan. See that right up there near Traverse City and then even into uh, Illinois as we're coming down more to a dry, which isn't officially uh, a drought. You have to be in at least a moderate. But again, improvements coming you know, regarding that drought monitor uh, in terms of the precipitation outlook. Still more rain in the forecast through Louisiana, Texas, Gulf Coast states. This is the 13th through the 17th uh, with the drier than normal conditions setting up into the Midwest, but also into the Northeast. This should tell you kind of the overall pattern that we're going to be seeing with the jet stream, which we'll look at in just a second, is most of these low pressure systems are going to be working to the south underneath and exiting to the Northeast rather than coming 
through the United States. Now, we'll of course, be uh, eyeing that as we go into Sunday, Monday and Tuesday. There is one low pressure system that is going to be working to the northeast. After that, by Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, it's more ridging starting to show up in the United States and in the jet stream. And when we say ridging, you want to think of the atmosphere kind of suppressed, not really allowing showers and thunderstorms or snow showers to develop. And that's what we're going to be seeing Wednesday and Thursday is more ridging back out towards the west, maybe a clipper system uh, kind of going down between the two extremes, but relatively quiet once we get on the other side of the current low pressure system that we're seeing. And remember, that's the same energy that was uh, had a lot to do regarding the West Coast and a lot of that rainfall. So by Saturday and Sunday, if this all holds again, we're talking five, six days out. If this holds above average temperatures right back in the forecast, and that puts us on the other side of Valentine's Day into next week. So Sunday and Monday of next week, uh, there's a good chance uh, that we'll see again. Rain chances come down and temperatures across the nation come back up with this kind of ridging in place. Again, there's a jet stream coming up on Sunday. Thanks, Matt. Well, as agriculture awaits for sustainable aviation fuel to take flight, what's the biggest hurdle? We went straight to the source, asking one major airline. That's the topic of our marketing roundtables from the Top Producer Summit next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report here from Top Producer Summit in Kansas City. Peter Meyer, Chip Flory, as well as Mila Bazetta joining us this weekend on the show. Pete, I'm going to start with you. We're going to focus on renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuel. You've been following the crush capacity. As you look right now, where does crush capacity set, and how do you see that growing over the next two years? Well, I mean, we, we see it growing probably about about another 10% in the next few years. I mean, certainly we've seen, we've seen some expansion there. Uh, really, the renewable diesel market is the one that's been taking off. Uh, they're still using a tremendous amount of soybean oil besides the used cooking oil and fats and tallows. So the soybean oil crush has to, has to keep up here if we want to continue this path. And certainly if you look at uh, a state that has an LCFS like California, uh, they just released their data from, from last year time, and it's a remarkable drop in their, in their carbon score. They really, the, the LCFS is working. One, if California is going to be your, your test case, it's working very well. Chip, what has been the biggest hurdle in bringing more plants on online? Time. Time. It just takes time to bring more crush facilities online. The money is being spent. The refiners have made the investment in the crush facilities. Look at the trends in the supply and demand report. Over the last two years, we've gone from 2.2 to 2.3 billion bushels of soybean crush. Our soybean meal stocks have gone from 300,000 to 400,000. So we're adding to the meal stocks, but then look at your bean oil stocks down from about 2 billion pounds to 1.5 billion pounds over the last two years. The trends that you said we needed to watch for three years ago are happening, Pete. The trends are happening. It's coming. It's just time. Pete, slower than expected? Oh, absolutely. But it's, you know, building new crush plants really is, is a very, very difficult, a difficult thing. But, you know, look at, look at all the issues that happened with Shell Rock up, up there yeah. in Iowa. But... You know, more it's, it's enhancement is what the big players, Chevron, um, Marathon, they're paying for enhancements with Bungie and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And that takes time as well. We've had supply chain issues as well right before this. You need steel, you need product. It's hard. And, and then the other thing that we've got to look at is some of the rules and regulations and incentives right. that yeah. are out there and how long it is taken to get some of the incentives in place. Yeah, so Mila, from your standpoint, Southwest Airlines, as you look at this potential demand and this growth, 
What has been the biggest hurdle in getting enough SAF today? Yeah, I mean, like they all say too, it's expensive, it's hard. These staff plans are complicated. Uh, they're, they're difficult to bring in line, but the credits are really just critical for us to get. We need more credits, we need deeper credits. You know, Southwest, uh, we you know, have spent a lot of our efforts trying to explain just the cost of producing, you know, it, this wasn't surprise anyone, right? This is just factual. The cost of producing staff is always going to be more expensive than oil. Like turning corn, switchgrass, whatever, is always going to be more expensive. So we are reliant on credits. You know, when fuel is 30% of our operating costs, and we have pretty razor thin margins, like we need these credit incentives to be deeper and more. So yeah, we we push every day. That, that's really going to, I think, unlock volumes. Dollar seventy-five a, bu uh, a gallon is an important number to the. Sustainable Absolutely. aviation fuel business. Right. That's right. They're very, airlines, airlines have to be pragmatic, right? Yeah. When, when, when we talk to them all the time, whether it's Southwest, United, Delta, they're like, Pete, we want to be in, but we got to be pragmatic about it. If it costs us too much, we're out. Well, and we saw this new Lanza jet plant come online. Exciting, thinking this is going to be, a, a, you know, open a new door. But are they even producing sustainable aviation fuel at this point from, from products here in the U.S.? It, not U.S.-based products, right. So their feedstock today is sugarcane ethanol from Brazil. I think a lot of that, to my understanding, I don't want to put the words in its mouth, is so the carbon intensity of that ethanol is lower than corn. You know, it won't, you all know, sugarcane, you can just produce more ethanol. It has more sugars available than corn does, so it's just better yields, and, you know, it just grows prolifically in South America. And how they're powering those plants. Does that impact their carbon intensity so, score? Yes, yeah, that's a good point. So there are some facilities uh, that use biomass boilers. So you know, they take you know, uh, sugar, bagasse, or bamboo in some facilities. They burn it for their boiler, in their boilers instead of using you know, fossil fuels, and that significantly decreases their carbon intensity. So, and then carbon sequestration is the next piece, too, that also helps bring down that carbon intensity score. So we need the carbon pipelines to be, the CO2 pipelines to be built here. Uh, we need that every avenue that we can get to uh, sequester and reduce uh, carbon is going to be important for us. Now you're into the controversy. <laughs> yeah, I said a dirty word. Sorry yeah. about that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we are just getting started. We do need to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Welcome back. Continuing our discussion here from top producer, all right, Pete, when you look at the demand potential over the next five years, we've talked about the challenges of plants coming online. We've talked about some of these hurdles, talked about needing more credits and all of that. But where do you see the demand potential over the next five years for both renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel? So the sustainable aviation fuel pool globally will be about 90 billion gallons uh, by the time uh, most of these airlines want to get to their net zero target, which is 2050. I know it's a way away, but that's the way you have to look at it. When we look at what ethanol was produced in this country uh, right before the pandemic, it would have only covered, if you took all the ethanol produced, it would only cover one third of the U.S. jet pool. So the fact of the matter is, though, Todd, is we've talked about crushed plants for soybean oil. We've talked about used cooking oil. We've talked about fats and tallows. Alcohol to jet is the only way we get there. The only way we get there. And the airlines will, will admit that as well. I mean, it's a huge chunk. Alcohol to jet is a huge chunk of what they, how they get to their sustainable aviation fuel targets. And it takes 1.6 gallons of ethanol to make a gallon of SAF, is that right? Yeah, that's nine to five, yeah. Yep. yep, that is about right. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. You know, we view SAF production kind of three time horizons. You know, today it's HEFA, it's all HEFA, right? There's, you know, Lanzajet is coming online, but they're not producing, you know, SAF today and certainly not from our corn ethanol that we need. 
Uh, and then our, the next timeline we receive is alcohol to jet. We see like a bunch of these facilities that need to come online in the 2030 to 2035 timeframe. So for Southwest, we need 300, about 300 million gallons of SAF by 2030 to meet our 10% volume targets. And then, you know, double or triple that by 2035 to meet our carbon intensity reductions. So we need these alcohol to jet plants to, to come online. And then, you know, horizons beyond that are you know, newer technologies, nascent technologies. We hope power to liquids gets built out. But yeah, alcohol jet is going to be critical to, to our mission here. That's a big order to fill. Yep. So be, knowing that it's not just soybeans that's fueling renewable diesel, it's not just corn that's fueling sustainable aviation fuel. I mean, when we first started talking about this conversation, there was talk we're going to need 30 million more acres of soybeans or 15 million more acres of soybeans to meet this demand. What is the reality, do you think, today? Uh, the reality today is that uh, we're kind of maxed out here in the U.S. on how many acres we can actually have. The, the mix can change a bit, but we've got to look down to South America for a lot of that expansion. And that's where it's going to take place. Uh, it, it, there's no question about it. But it's the domestication of the U.S. soybean market that is going to be a major disruption to everything that we do. Uh, Pete mentioned the Shell Rock, uh, Iowa plant. It is close enough to the river that it is competing with the river bid, okay? So you've got exports against domestic crush that is already set up because of that shell rock plant. We need, we need this to that. We, yeah. lost, we lost a U.S. corn export market last year. Yeah. We lost it. We lost a U.S. soybean export market eight years ago. When you look at the trend, the trend is not friendly. Good. This could not happen at a better time. Sure, everybody in this room and everybody on this panel would have, would have liked this thing to happen a little bit quicker, but we need this demand. What is an extra billion bushels of corn demand and an extra 300, three, four, you know, maybe 400, but an extra 300 million bushels of bean demand mean to everybody in this room? Yep. It means the world. Yep. Okay, so the reality is for Southwest Airlines, then, you know, remind us, how do you see this demand growing over the next two to two to five years? And what is the crop of choice for you? Yeah, I, yeah, I couldn't say that we necessarily have a crop of choice, but I will say, you know, corn is very critical to Southwest, Southwest mission. So as I mentioned before, we do own, co-own, exclusive licensing for a cellulosic ethanol technology. And we are about to embark on building a pilot plant to convert uh, corn stover into ethanol. So we are going to need, you know, these corn, our corn farmers, we need those relationships uh, for us. That is going to be critical for us. This is one of the ways that we are getting to our idea of near parity jet is we reach up and down our supply chain. So the up is certainly we're trying to control our destiny by producing cellulosic ethanol. Um, and we, of course, we'll need our partnerships in ATJ to, you know, to upgrade it to the SAF, you know, and then all the way downstream, you know, we're looking at um, having our own blending operations. So Mila, Chip, Pete, thank you so much for joining us. We need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. Come with me this week. We're headed to Kansas to visit with Melvin Snoke about his Farmall 350. Uh, I bought it because it had live power takeoff on it and uh, running a bush hog, it's just a lot easier to creep into something or you're getting a heavy, uh, heavy load to shift down a gear and keep power takeoff running. There's quite a bit of difference. The 300 was to replace the H's and the Super H, and it's substantially more power. The 350 replaced the M. Put a little gas in them and uh, they'll start right up. And they run economical, a gallon, gallon and a half, 
two gallon an hour if you're really working on it. The bigger ones, you climb up and down on those, you know, 40 times. <laughs> An old fellow gets tired. Still to come, driven for excellence. One South Dakota rancher has expanded their operations horizons, even getting into biotherapeutics. And it's creating a legacy that will last for generations. We'll introduce you to the 2024 top producer of the year next. You're watching U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, the Top Producer Summit took place this week in Kansas City and a big highlight, the Top Producer Awards Banquet. This weekend, we're going to introduce you to some of the winners, including the Top Producer of the Year, which was given to Christensen Land and Cattle. Well, respecting the land while helping to grow and diversify your operation. That's the goal, Christine Hamilton of Christensen Land and Cattle. Clint Griffiths takes us to South Dakota for a look at a farm with roots dating back over 100 years. We're always looking for opportunities to grow. At Christensen Land and Cattle, they're committed to excellence and continuous improvement, a mindset that started when Christine Hamilton's family homesteaded in South Dakota back in 1891. However, we can respect what the land can produce for us and work in tandem with that to create opportunities as we go along. I think it's, a, it's an honor. Christine came back to help transition the operation in 1993. Today, she serves as co-owner with husband Eddie and enjoys her role of overseeing CLC's vision. Being able to see all aspects of it and being able to have the mobility to uh, engage in all aspects of it. But she attributes their success to a management team of nine full-time employees who run the day-to-day -day activities. We farm 14,000 acres with a diversified rotation, mainly corn, beans, and wheat. They use cutting-edge technology to push yield potential while protecting the land. We get into precision egg very intensive by we strip till in variable rate the fertilizer that, we, that we're putting down with our strip till and then we evaporate our seed with our planters. CLC also has 11,000 acres of rangeland and runs 1,100 head of cattle, managed by Sean Reese with a holistic approach. Rotating pastures, staying away from season long grazing. We rotate our cows probably monthly, trying not to be on the same pasture two years in a row. CLC uses activity-based accounting, which they adopted back in 2001, following the Hamilton's involvement with the Farm Financial Standards Council. We have a very extensive uh, system um, for that, and that really helps the whole management team know where their costs are at in any given time. Christine has always led the organization into taking a look at opportunities, both traditional and non-traditional, um, not afraid to uh, examine things that might be a little bit riskier as long as they have the opportunity to provide returns. One of those opportunities is their wholesale beef business. And the Hamiltons are part owners in SAB Therapeutics, which is now publicly traded. SAB Biotherapeutics is a technology that is one of a kind, it's unique, it's a 
source of human polyclonal antibodies outside of a human. And it's through CLC's business innovation that ensures all of these companies, as well as the farm, are financially sound. So we are always looking at measuring costs and analyzing our performance. Congratulations to Christensen Land and Cattle. Thanks, Clinton. Well, from the first female president of National Corn Growers Association to a next-gen farmer also breaking the mold. We will introduce you to two other award winners later in the show. But first, the ripple effect of the growing conflict in the Middle East and the impact it could have on fertilizer. Ag Around the World is next. Now for a look at ag around the world. Shipping problems in the Red Sea are starting to impact U.S. ag companies, creating new supply chain issues. National reporter Michelle Rook has an update. The problems in the Red Sea are having a domino effect on global shipping issues and serving as a headwind for U.S. food and agricultural exports and imports. Protein companies are being hit, including Tyson Foods, Hormel Foods and Pilgrim's Pride Corporation, who export to Asia, as well as Latin American protein companies such as JBS, Marfrig and Minerva Foods. We're having disruptions now in not only in the Gaza Israeli area, but the Red Sea area, which I realize that a small percent of our, of our exports go to that part of the world, but these, this, these supply chains are global. So where there's a kink in the armor in one part of the world, if it goes on long enough, it usually ends up affecting other parts of the world. So we need to keep an eye on that as well. Riding south around Africa's Cape of Good Hope adds another 16 days to transit time. That's nearly doubled shipping rates in the Red Sea and increased rates in other areas of the globe as well. They're volatile is probably the right word. They're up and then they're down and there's another issue in another area. So the volatility is almost as bad as the actual rate itself. And that's uh, in the last uh, year and a half has been, been more of a concern. U.S. grain and oilseed exports have also faced global choke points for shipping and the Red Sea has become part of that story. With essentially ag har not hardly getting through the Panama Canal, we were re rerouting a lot of shipping through the Red Sea, through the Suez Canal, um, and you can see that in, in the shipping data. Um, but that's obviously had its challenges with uh, the tax on shipping. So it's created more longer transit times um, for to, to get beans to Asia. Food companies importing from countries like Asia face the greatest risk from shipping disruptions, including coffee, spices, and even specialty sauces from Italy. Higher transportation costs will likely get tacked on at the grocery store. I'm Michelle Brook for U.S. Farm Report. Thanks, Michelle. Well, the conflict in the Red Sea could also have a major impact on fertilizer prices and availability. Josh Linville, who's vice president for fertilizer for Stone X Group, telling me the biggest hit could be to nitrogen. When you look at the U.S., half of our urea imports for every year come from the Middle East region. And we've been watching the Red Sea very closely. Of course, these attacks on vessels have cost a lot of the vessels to decide, I don't want to take the chance. I don't want to put my vessel at risk. I don't want to put my people at risk. So they're opting to take the clauses in there, basically a wartime clause, and go south around Africa. That adds more freight charge to it, of course. But the worst part is, given how close we are to spring, it tacks on another 10 to 15 days worth of sale time to get to the North America marketplace. And when you look at how crunched we are against spring coming, that could be a big, big deal. He says there's also worries the conflict could spill over into the Persian Gulf region, an area that's a major exporter of urea. He says that little pocket of the world alone exports tens of millions of tons of urea per year. EU leadership is shelving a plan to restrict pesticides 
by half. It's seen as a victory for farmers following weeks of protests across the 27 nations. The European Commission did release its roadmap for slashing carbon pollution by 90% of 1990 levels by 2040. But it also took out a section on climate action in the agriculture sector. That section called for a 30% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture compared to 2015 levels. The EU document sets the goal and outlines how to get there, touching on fossil fuels, transportation, and industry. It could take up to a year for the European Parliament to approve the roadmap, but it's likely to set a benchmark for developed nations worldwide. Well, here at home, she has used her voice to make a major impact on agriculture, and she's this year's 2024 Top Producer Women in Ag winner. We introduce you to Pam Johnson next. Chip's Corner this week, live and in person. Chip, this is exciting. You are actually here. We're not yeah. speaking uh, uh, virtually this time. Yep. Excited to have you. Thanks for being on the panel earlier. But a lot of what we were talking about was sustainable aviation, fuel, renewable diesel. It seems like that demand is really being driven by ESG. Absolutely. ESG is back in the headlines. There were a dozen state ag commissioners and ag secretaries that sent a letter to the six biggest banks in America the biggest of the big, they sent a letter to them asking for some, some very specific questions regarding ESG and how it's going to impact those banks' willingness to lend to the agriculture community in the future. Now, we talked with one of the commissioners that signed on, Sid Miller, and he said, listen, you got to take it serious because of what the administration has already put in place. Well, I don't know. Uh, Biden, you know, he put in his 30 by 30 plan the first week he was in office. And that's to take, you know, 30 percent of our land out of production by the year 2030. Of course, that's just phase one. Phase two is the 50-50 plan. The European Union are way ahead of us. Uh, and that's where this uh, net zero banking kind of falls into that same category. And that is part of the issue that we're dealing with time because the, the uncertainty of whether or not these ESG-driven priorities are going to be a part of the next administration, the administration after that, will it still be in place in, in third, you know, will 30 and 30 and 50 and 50 still be a thing in 10 years? Well, and that's the thing, it is drawing mixed reactions. I saw the crowd as we were talking about the renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuel. On one hand, farmers are skeptical, right? Oh, On the yeah. other hand, this could be huge demand. On one hand, we talk about ESG, environmental social governance, and farmers roll their eyes back in their head and they say that this is something that we don't want to be any part of. On the other hand, we look at things like the low carbon fuel standard over on the West Coast, and we hope that they are wildly successful in that because of what it will mean for soybean oil demand. On one hand, we don't want ESG to work. On the other hand, a lot of the demand in the future might be based on ESG issues. But we look at, at, at declining exports. We look at growing stocks. Do we need this demand? We're domesticating the markets. That's the bottom line there. We need to build that domestic market. All right, Chip Flory, host of AgriTalk. You can listen to him 10 a.m. Central for AgriTalk AM, 2 p.m. Central for AgriTalk PM. Chip, again, thank you for joining us. Nice to have you on. Love to see you. All right, yep. thank you so much. All right, when we come back, she was elected the first female president of National Corn Growers Association. We're going to introduce you to the Women in Ag winner next.
The 2024 Top Producer Women in Ag Award winner is proof by tapping into the power of your voice, you can make a difference. Pam Johnson is a sixth generation Iowa farmer who's held numerous leadership roles in agriculture, including with the U.S. Grains Council and the National Corn Growers Association. In fact, she was elected the first woman to become president of NCGA in October of 2012. She's dedicated her career to making a difference in ag, both on and off the farm, leaving her mark in many ways. As a sixth generation Iowa farmer, Pam Johnson has been sharing agriculture's food, fiber, and fuel stories her entire life. I think I'll die being an advocate for agriculture. It's just part of who I am. She grew up on the farm, then went to college to be a nurse, but came back to the operation after marriage. Maurice and I were married back in the 70s, and like a lot of people, started out really small on a rented farm, 10 sows. Um, and we were in growth mode there then, and we've been in growth mode for the last 50 years. During that time, they grew their hog and grain operation to the nearly 1,200 acres of corn, soybeans, and CRP ground they farm today. We farrowed to finish hogs for 38 years and went out the door together um, every day and worked and worked in the, in the field together too. I used to be the grain cart driver, and uh, when we raised pigs, you know, the partner who was out the door doing everything from farrowing to sewing up pigs, vaccinating, you name it, sorting, moving. Their growth also included adopting strip-till and no-till practices and embracing precision farming. Through the years, adapting to new technology, not just with seed genetics, but also crop management practices and seeing ones that work better, and they certainly paid off this year on this farm during the drought, we had the best corn yield we've ever had. No-till, strip-till, cover crops, saving every drop of water. When Johnson's sons came home to farm after college, she became an even more active advocate for agriculture, as she realized farmers would not have a future with $2 corn. Building demand is not a spectator sport. That was when she became an early innovator and a voice for the ethanol industry. We learned about ethanol, but not only that, we learned about what can happen when farmers work together and some of this stuff was farmer owned. So who controls it, who owns it, who benefits. Johnson worked her way through leadership roles on the Iowa Corn Promotions Board and the National Corn Growers Association, becoming the first female president of NCGA. And her legacy is encouraging others to use their voice. You can do it, right? So that's how I'm remembered is raise your hand, say yes. She says their success has given them the opportunity to give back and pay it forward, not just to her family, but to the agricultural industry and local community. That's why Pam Johnson is the 2024 Top Producer Women in Ag Award winner. Thank you, Clinton, for also sharing Pam's story. Well, still to come, she's breaking the mold and growing her family's business in new and exciting ways as CEO. We'll introduce you to Top Producers Next Gen Award winner, Next. Plus, saying goodbye to a leader in agriculture who left his mark in not just Iowa, but across the U.S. Honors at this year's top producer summit in Kansas City also shined a light on the future leaders 
on the farm. Clinton Griffiths profiles the winner of the top producer Next Gen Award, Hallie Schaffner, who's definitely breaking the mold. The work never stops, even if the machines do at SFR Seed in Newport, Arkansas. I haven't milled this all the way, but it's Hallie Schaffner's focused on potential at her 2,000 acre operation, a family business specializing in seed production and research. Hallie is carrying on a mission her mother started back in 1988. She trained me in how to increase pure seed stock of soybeans and rice. And it's been a, a journey of me learning what she did and then adopting new practices in the field, particularly in terms of uh, rice work. Which is somewhat new to the operation. Now growing and maintaining about 20 different rice varieties in partnership with USDA. We've been very lucky to have them <laughs> helping us out in the field so that we can build our own rice purity program. Raised in these fields, Hallie spent her childhood between the rows. When I was little, my mom gave me an option. She said, you can go to church with your grandmother or you can go scout cotton with your dad. And that, as a kid, that's an easy choice, right? Because he would take me to McDonald's and we'd get, which he still does today. We'd stop and he'd say, go pick me 100 squares. And so we'd go out, we'd pick them, bring them back to the tailgate, open them up, look for bugs. And those are some of my best memories with my dad. After college, encouraged to get out of ag, she lived all over the world, from Nashville to India, back to Seattle to Arkansas, then Peru and Spain. I tried a lot of different things. I tried grant writing, I tried nonprofit work, I tried marketing, and I really didn't find anywhere where I fit in. But agriculture was calling. My dad needed to retire um, because he got his dementia diagnosis, and they said, you can come back if you want, if you don't, we'll just shut it down. And I thought, no, I don't, please don't do that. <laughs> Working with her mother, in 2019, she took the lead as CEO and continues to focus on growing the business, searching for opportunities in specialty crops and value-added production. But in the Delta, we're so focused on commodities, we're so focused on volume that we kind of lose perspective on the specialty work. And there is a push now, knowing that the Delta has water, and places like California do not, you know, there's gonna be a big push for specialty work here in the South. And she's doing it while focusing on sustainability. Farmers are doing their part to combat the 10% carbon emissions that we are contributing uh, to greenhouse gases. We need support from other industries. If we're making the investments in technology that we need to become more environmentally sustainable, other industries need to do so as well. An exciting future built on the gifts from the past. I'm extremely privileged. I come from a long history of farming. I'm a sixth generation farmer. I will inherit land that's been in our family for over 100 years. A mission learned from those days in the fields with her father and from watching her mother, the scientist. I watched her walk confidently into every room and speak her mind. She was the expert. And I just, I knew that I could do anything because I saw her do anything, right? Confidence and precision. She's pouring into every day as she works to carry on a legacy of innovation. I'm proud to be a farmer. Like I said, farmers are the ultimate innovators. We have been since the agricultural revolution 10,000 years ago. And I just am proud to be a part of that generation. Congratulations to Hallie Schaffner, 
the 2024 Top Producer Next Gen Award winner. Congratulations to all of the winners this week. Well, to end on a bit of a sad note, we're remembering a champion of agriculture who passed away this week. We're talking about Bill Northey. Northey served three years as USDA's first undersecretary for farm production and conservation starting in 2018. Before that, he served as Iowa's Secretary of Agriculture for more than 11 years. Brought the heart of a farmer, the work ethic of a farmer to everything he did. And, and I always appreciated the fact that that's, that's how he viewed his, his time as Secretary of Agriculture was in that, in that lens and certainly his time at USDA also as he really worked to oversee the farmer facing the, the customer service side of USDA. Bill Northey was 64 years old. Our thoughts are with his family. Well, from all of us at U.S. Farm Report, thank you so much for watching. We will be on the road next week to National Farm Machinery Show, so be sure to join us if you're in the area for our live taping that will happen Thursday. And tune in next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.